Benifer is back. Brad and Jen are friends again. And Paris Hilton is somehow still making headlines. 20 years later, we're living in the world that the 2000s tabloids created. On this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a decade of American life through the trash we love to consume. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line forever trying to perfect the work-life balance. It's Andy Greenwald! I love it. I, I, you know, I'd love to have that conversation with you in addition to talking about, talking about Severance, because we, which is the Apple TV Plus show we're going to be talking about this week. That's usually your job to do that, but I'm just doing it. I'm <laughs> no, running. I love because it when you run point, man, I can just come off the ball and just like do little curls. Just I'm a, take some I'm a, shots up. Do you, do you think of me as a ball dominant player, ball dominant wing? You're kind of like, big. You're you're like Rip Hamilton. It's basically like you <laughs> do all you you do a lot of like work off screens and running around, uh-huh. and then once I give you the ball. It's a black hole and I'm not going to get it back. I know what to do with it. Also, yeah. <laughs> surprisingly fragile facial bones, if That's I remember right. correctly. That's right. Very You've tender to the touch. Potting in a mask for the last three months. Andy, what a, what a day today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the TV news that's come out of the TCAs, which is for people who don't know the Television Critics Association. They have this, I mean, not a convention, but an annual sort of gathering of the juggalos where everybody mm-hmm. comes and shows their wares to the TV Critics Association. And uh, often a lot of news comes out of that. There was also um, a Paramount Investors Day, which I somehow was not invited to. Uh, yeah, weird, Chris. Yeah, weird. I mean, I'm basically a homesteader in the Taylor Sheridan universe, but did not get the invite there. Uh, I also there was thought that it was part of, of the that. larger, like as an Aaron Eckhart stockholder, I thought that that was part of a larger, you know, like there's like a Bernstein account where like they, they're like, you have stock in a bunch of things and then it's all grouped together. I thought that Aaron Eckhart was offloaded. A lot of that stock went to Viacom. You know, oh, right. in a distressed asset. Oh, so swap. like it was like a mutual fund or something. Like exactly. we don't really know what exactly. we're talking about doing. No. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we have a bunch of stuff to talk about today, and then also we're going to spend the second half of the show chatting a little bit about Severance, which is the new show from Ben Stiller on Apple TV, which is premiering. I don't know how Apple does it. It's either tomorrow morning or tonight. I I think it's tomorrow it's, morning. I think it, the signs say seventeenth, so I think it might be might even be out. The signs say that? Okay, so it's not... I didn't see it like as recording at 2 o'clock. I did not see it. It usually says... It, I think it says on Apple TV available Friday. In any, any case, okay. by the time you listen to this, I think Severance will be available. 
You know what, guys? Can we just pause the recording? I'm going to go check out the billboard on okay. Sunset and Alvarado because I feel like that's where I get most of my news. So um, Kai and I will just up, talk I'll... about Irish communism for a little while while you're out. Just stretch, stretch. Andy, where do you want to start? I had this bit about Paramount mm. at the top, but that is also my bias. Um, and mm-hmm. of that Paramount stuff, I really have nothing else to tell you other than the fact that Taylor Sheridan is making five more shows, apparently. And uh, I have some notes on those, but we could do that or we could start with John Landgraf, the head of FX's so, annual State of the Union. Let's start Paramount. I mean, I, I think that... There, I, I mean, at first, let's just start with Paramount. Like, this is insane. Are they trying to break a person? <laughs> like, <laughs> at a certain point, no one is going to be mad at Taylor if he's like, this is, this is my guy, Jim. Jim writes shows sometimes, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's cool. There's no shame in that, right? So they said Five more shows? You want to talk them through? That Taylor was going to take a step back from his show running and directing responsibilities to concentrate on writing. And I had actually forgotten that he does that. You know, he that he does do show running and directing for a lot of these shows. Yes. So obviously now we have Yellowstone's on the air. Mayor of Kingstown concluded its... Well, Yellowstone and Mayor of Kingstown recently concluded seasons. And then 1883 is wrapping up its first season. There was already a couple of these shows have been announced, but just to run through all of the mm-hmm. ones that sort of kind of got solidified this week. Yellowstone, 1883, Mayor of Kingstown, Mayor of Kingstown is coming back for a second season. There's Tulsa King, which is a Sylvester Stallone um, 1930s gangster show about a guy who goes away from uh, a mafioso from New York who goes away to prison for 25 years. Maybe it's not in the 1930s. Comes out and is uh, exiled to Tulsa where he basically reconstitutes a mob out in Oklahoma. Then, not the same show, he is also doing a show called 1932, which is specifically part of the Yellowstone universe and is about the son of one of the people on 1883 Mm -hmm. during Prohibition in the 1930s. Then other shows he's doing include The Lioness, which is a Zoe Saldana uh, CIA show, Bass Reeves, a David Oyello Western, and Landman, which is the show that I'm most hyped up about, which is the Billy Bob Thornton oil business fixer show, which is based on the Boomtown podcast. And that's where I want to start uh, our mm-hmm. little conversation about these things. I saw something this week that was really um, quite moving to me, Andy. It's, uh, I feel like sometimes we're calloused over to uh, joy in this world. You know, mm-hmm. like maybe it's we've spent too much time online and our nerve endings are shot or whatever. For sure. But what I saw was this. In a promotional video for Paramount, I saw that Billy Bob Thornton uh, was talking about Landman working with Taylor Sheridan. Billy Bob's also on 1883 briefly. And Billy Bob Thornton was wearing a knit hat. And then on top of the knit hat, Billy Bob Thornton was wearing a fedora. Now, we don't really put out a lot of video or or anything from this podcast, and I, I don't expect us to. Are you... Yeah, so, Kaya, I'm you just can see this it. now. I Andy's want Kaya to see it. it. This isn't great podcasting. But that's what happens when a man has got it all. Is, and I, I don't mean this metaphorically. You can really, literally wear multiple hats. You, you've you've made one false move. You yeah. went to battle over the the director's cut of all the pretty horses. Mm-hmm. You've been in Armageddon. You were deeply in love with Angelina Jolie, albeit briefly. Uh, and then you arrive at this place in your life where you're you're on Amazon all the time in in Goliath. You're a respected musician, you know. And you're just a guy who can put two hats on, you know? And I want to know, 
How much more podcasting do you think I have to do to be able to, 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 to do this? To literally wear a knit hat with a fedora or a cowboy hat on top of it? Well, first of all, it's a great question. I think that, so thank you. I want to begin there <laughs> from a place of gratitude. Two. Also, thank you to the universe for Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. You, Chris, it's a complicated issue because you wear one hat a lot. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I say this with love and affection. Like the majority of your work life these days is talking into a microphone. You're a podcaster. You're, yeah. you are a, you're the best at what you do. So it's really one hat. So I think that you could theoretically <laughs> diversify your professional portfolio and earn a second hat. Sure. But at the moment, you're a one hat guy. Now, what I want to know is, do you think Billy Bob has always worn multiple hats? Because Sling Blade, I believe he he did more than one thing, right? From the beginning. Do you think it's in kind of like a low-key drive-by on Taylor Sheridan being like, you may think you wear many hats, but I have owned hats longer? I think you're confusing our listeners, though. I'm mm. not talking about the roles he plays sure. or like what he does in his professional yeah. life. He literally, from a haberdashery yeah. standpoint, mm-hmm. refuses to choose between mm-hmm. knit hat and fedora, so puts both on at the same time. You see, While I, promoting I, I, a new television show. See, I think this is weird, though, honestly. Look, let's keep it real. I think it's a little weird for you to, to, to pick on this because you, Chris, are a man who I'm every day wakes up. It. I'm Wait, celebrating. Wait, ex- ex- excuse me for a second. Okay, I know you had, Chris had some fancy matcha this week, and all of a sudden. Ceremonial grade. <laughs> it's cooking in his veins. All of a sudden, he's got a different attitude. What I want to say, Chris, is that every day you wake up and you refuse to choose between shirts and jackets. That's true. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. I think there's something deeper here. Like you, as discussed on this podcast, you are known as a layer king. You are a guy who looks at your torso in the morning and expects greatness. This is, you look at your body as a load-bearing vessel for multiple, multiple items of clothing, often contradictory items of clothing. And I think what's fueling this conversation, I'm sorry, Kaya, cover your ears. I think it's a little bit of envy. Because so, I don't think you thought this kind of layering could migrate above the neck. And that's I think right. that you're I'm like a you character know. in 1883 who stopped at Abilene. I'm yes, like, here I am. Yes. I got I, I thought I was in the West. You know? Right. And then I yes. meet a true frontiersman. Yes. Or you're a character in the Sheridan verse who stopped in 1883 and didn't even know about 1932. I didn't. I didn't you're even like, know. What? <laughs> what? Um, 40 years from now? What? Which of these shows for a layman is most appealing? Mm. Well, at first, I just want to say, I am in awe of this guy, of Taylor Sheridan, because it's not just of all the things he does and whether or not I like them or not. It's pretty incredible to just apparently have a limitless bucket of ideas that are exactly what his viewers and his fans want, that are so tailor-made to service the segment of the viewing population that Paramount has very smartly carved out for him to to service. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they all sound like good ideas. And they also, and I don't even know how to articulate this, none of them sound like reinventing the wheel ideas, which is what he's so good at. You know what I mean? Like like the Bass Reeves story for people who watched um, Watchmen, Bass Reeves is a character that mm-hmm. signifies in Watchmen, the, the black cowboy, the famous American icon, um, not famous enough. Making a show about him and his life, that's a no-brainer great. Then you get David Oyelowo, you know, a great actor, Academy Award nominated actor, phenomenal. Boomtown podcast, have not listened, but 
aware of it and like seems interesting, again, that slots in. That's not a, it's not in the Yellowstone verse per se, but of course it just makes sense. And I think that we rarely see this kind of clarity of thinking in the auteur shingle camp. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like generally you can see this kind of thinking in a corporate division or like when we praise Disney for streamlining what it does into franchises, sure. But often like the elevated, highly paid auteurs, as soon as they get that nine figure deal, they want to show all the different things they can do, you know? And Taylor Sheridan has been really smart about managing his career. Yeah. I mean, the only person I can really think of that's comparable aside from like the sort of corporation level Mm -hmm. Dick Wolf stuff is Berlanti, Greg Berlanti, who has at any given time, seemingly 10 or 12 shows on the air. But, you know, as I was reading a lot of the interviews that were coming out of TCA's this week, you know, uh, Casey Bloys from HBO was talking about the various things that J.J. Abrams is involved with aside from his overall with Warner. So like him Mm -hmm. making a Star Trek movie for Paramount and a show for Apple. And I was like, none of these shows are on. (laughs) you know Taylor Sheridan's actually got like five shows I mean he seems to have developed a working relationship with Paramount where stuff goes from the page to the screen pretty quickly which I'm sure is something that like encourages his own creativity you know if I had to guess it's like the the ease of use with the mechanism of getting stuff on the air of like you know and he shoots a lot of stuff you know on his uh on his ranch in Texas or on his ranch in Montana and has kind of developed his own cottage industry. I just wonder whether or not like the dude is straight, straight up just going to like burn final draft out. You know, they're going to have to come up with a new, a new program for him. He will reach the final draft. Like, exactly. He will be well named. Yeah. No, him and Tyler Perry are, are industries unto themselves. And I don't think there's anyone else even remotely close. It's a, it's, it's wild. So one of the things that came out of this uh, Paramount conversation, there's some stuff I would like to chat about. We can do maybe down the line about like Showtime eventually being it's Showtime's online uh, streamer being maybe um, subsumed under Paramount Plus and uh, how Viacom CBS is going to rebrand as Paramount. Like basically everything is kind of getting a cleaner branding and also you're going to start to be able to find, which, you know, they, they've got to like, they still are, are kind of working out the fact that the most popular show that they've produced in the last 10 years is not available on the Paramount Plus streaming app, which is Yellowstone. But there was a bit of Yellowstone news that I thought was noteworthy, which is that uh, the next season, the fifth season, will be, quote unquote, supersized but split in half, which now seems to be a not uncommon thing to be happening. Just this week, uh, it was also announced or um, that Stranger Things would be, the fourth season of Stranger Things would be split in half. Uh, we already knew the Better Call Saul's final season was going to come out in two parts. Ozark's final season is being distributed in two parts. The first one aired in the beginning of the year, and then the second half, I think, comes out in the summer at some point. But, you know, at a time when all this kind of, uh, there's so much conversation over how stuff gets distributed, uh, what the release schedule is going to be. It's curious if you had any thoughts on um, whether or not this was a product of COVID, mm-hmm. of shows maybe being delayed production-wise, or whether this was another curveball that the industry is throwing to see if it attracts a little bit more stickiness to its shows from viewers. I think it's yes to all of it. I think it'd be foolish to discount the disruptive role COVID has played in everything. Um, and so, yes, it's a factor. It could just, you know, in certain shows, in the case of certain shows, it could be that because of the COVID delays, the entire season won't be finished in post in time. And so they're making this decision to pivot because it's been a long time. I think because of COVID, but also just because of the nature of how TV is made and the sheer number of projects that 
popular creators find themselves involved in, um, there is no longer anything close to a guarantee that shows can come out on a 12-month schedule or an 18-month schedule or even a 24-month schedule. Um, This week we saw the announcement that Barry season three is finally coming to HBO and HBO Max, and there were some exciting photos of Bill Hader and Stephen Root and Anthony Kerrigan. And it's been three calendar years since that show was on television. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. I mean, th- there have been reboots, I think, of canceled shows that have pulled it together faster than that. You're probably right. I, I, it, I'm not, and I'm not saying that with any like snarkiness. I can't wait for Barry season three. That show has a 100% Q rating. People love it and will be excited for it. But that's the nature of the scheduling now. And so I think that the distribution model and this was this was a big piece of John Landgraf's interview as well for people who, who want to check it out on Deadline. That is very much um, that's a that's a high point of conversation in the in the C suites of all these companies. You know, what's our best method of not just getting this to the consumer in a way that it will spark, but managing the conversation, controlling the conversation, getting into the conversation, and then you add the next piece of it, which is that this is a subscription based business and for something like Netflix, right, which, as we've discussed, has enormous hits across the board in many fields. But in terms of, like, homegrown success stories that drive traffic, as to go back to the beginning of my rant, not just season to season, but every other year or so, Stranger Things is at the top of the list. Yes. So if you finally get this new season together, are you really going to dump it on a holiday weekend and then be like, um, is the floor still lava? Right. No. You're going to say, we're going to give you a whole bunch of it. And then you're not going to cancel your subscription because we're then going to give you more later. I mean, they're, they're spreading the, the wealth around to try to keep the conversation going and to keep the bottom line where it is. It's, it's all connected. Every conversation is, yes, about creativity and content, but very much about bottom line and finances as well. Yeah, this seems also the Stranger Things things specifically. So there was uh, the Duffer brothers who do the show kind of put up a, a note to fans that was essentially like, this has been the most challenging, but also the most rewarding season. And, uh, you know, we've poured so much into it and it's epic that we don't want not not only to rush it, but it wound up being bigger than we thought it was going to be. And this Mm -hmm. is a show that I think, um, had an extensive writing period and then stop start production period as it moved around and had to deal with COVID stuff. So it's not that surprising that something like this is happening. But one thing that I think I noticed over seasons two and three of stranger things was, the thing that happens with returning Netflix shows where it's like you can you can get people hyped for its return, but the conversation that happens after it is a little bit more fluid. So I remember when the first season of Stranger Things aired and it was like, hey, has anybody, have you checked this out? This is actually pretty good. Whoa, this is really good. Whoa, this is a huge sensation. And it was felt like, felt like, a, like a month, five weeks, six week conversation. The second and third seasons were a little bit more like hardcore fans watch it in a weekend normie people watch it over the course of a couple of weeks or whatever, but there was no real, like, how do we talk about this understanding? So now what they're going to do is put out part one of season four on May 27th. And then they're going to put out the second part about a month later on July 1st. So this is the penultimate season. They announced the fifth season would be the final one. I think it's really smart. It's a way around, you know, Netflix's clearly unbending, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, binge model is to give people less but more. Yes, I'll say that also a part of this release strategy was to announce that, don't worry, it's half the season, but everything is twice as long. Right. Which 
Okay. It sounds a little <laughs> bit like a threat to me, you know, because I, I would say as a fan who really loved the first season and bought in even to the, I mean, a lot of the show is intentionally derivative. I mean, and, and celebratory of a certain type of fandom and culture from our youth. Like I bought in, um, I would say that my issue with the subsequent seasons was it wears, it's a little less charming when there's that much of it. You know, I I just felt like it could have used some editing, but that's, you know, Netflix's model is more is, more is better. Unless, unless it comes to uh, seasons of glow, in which case um, it disagrees. Um, But can can I, before we move on. No, um, because I was going to ask you about Saul and the splitting the Saul seasons. Oh, that's what I was going to come to also. First thing I want to say about Better Call Saul. So excited for the show to come back. They can give it to me however they want to give it to me. I'm really excited about it. I imagine a bunch of people listening have already found this, but last week the New York Times had a big profile of Bob Odenkirk written by, I believe, uh, Jonah Weiner. Yeah, Jonah Weiner. And it was a great piece. And... I just have to call out something about this piece that I've not stopped thinking about since I read it. Was it like the various parts of Albuquerque that get mentioned that you were deeply familiar with from living in Albuquerque? Yes and no. It was related to being in Albuquerque. It's that Bob Odenkirk, the star of Better Call Saul, the the engine that fuels that show, since season one, has chosen to live in a share house with Rhea Seahorn and... Um, What's his name? Patrick, Patrick Fabian. Fabian. Yeah. I feel so warm and fuzzy and happy when I think about this. I cannot express it to you. Because as someone who lived alone in a rented house in Albuquerque with, you know, I, I, I was the busiest I've ever been in my life, but I was not the star of a franchise television show. I can't imagine the demands on Bob Odenkirk's life. The fact that he understood himself and his like emotional state and what he needed as a person to be like, I just want to hang out with my pals. Like, I want to come back from set and then like shoot the shit over like carrot sticks and hummus in the kitchen island for a few minutes. And then they let Ray Seahorn have the master bedroom. <laughs> I was so delighted by this. I just find him to be such a fascinating, a clearly good-hearted uh, and complicated figure. And 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 it it tracked in a way that I found really fulfilling with the version of him that, remember he was on the podcast at the first season of Better Call Saul. And the only guest that I ever have ever interviewed who asked to step down midway through so he could have a little food because his blood sugar was crashing. I have a follow-up question. Do you really think at this mm-hmm. stage in your life mm-hmm. that you could have a non-familial roommate situation? I've thought about this a lot. I have, I've been thinking about this. Because I was, I was like, I love you. I yeah. don't know if you and I would love living together. Because I feel like... Yeah. You like your private time sometimes. We all we're only children. We yeah. we, we 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 are we are literally when we talk about but private you know time. Me. I'm the dad. You are, know I come are, I come in. I want to get a little bit of Andy time. I no. want to see like hey like like look the end of this Lakers game is on. Maybe you and I could play a little Halo. You know maybe Chris. we could get into something a little bit racier than carrot sticks. You know when it comes time to discussing the need to be alone, we are Bane. Okay, like other people flirt with the dark. Only children were fucking born into it. They don't know our struggle. They don't. They, it's fine. (laughs) Like, it's okay. And I think, much like the heroes of Gotham versus Tom Hardy's masked menace, one must fight that tendency towards solitary darkness. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, at the end of like 
14, 15 hour days on set, I was not feeling my most like chipper and chatty. But I also feel like some normalizing human interaction, you know, would have been would have been welcome, which yeah. is actually I did have because as we've talked about on the pod, the great actor Brian Garrity had the adjoining house. And so I would try to sneak past his door where he'd have like classic rock playing from his like small sono speaker. And he'd be like, hey, and then you'd have to go in and talk to him for a while. So but yes. I, I can't believe you think, I, I think we would be fine. Also, they, it's not a small house. You know no, I, mean? I know. Like, it's not like they have one bathroom between Ray Seahorn, no. Bob Odenkirk, and Patrick Favorite. I'm sure my, it's my a lovely- My sense is they like, all have their own en suites. Yes. They can miss each other. I thought you were going to say I didn't want to stay with you, not because you were going to invite me to have like adult carrot sticks. By the way, we're, we're circling back to that. <laughs> and playing Halo. It's that like Ceremonial the last time- grade carrot sticks. <laughs> exactly. It's that the last time we shared a room, a hotel room, which is already now like seven, eight years ago, I learned that you do sleep like Nosferatu with earbuds in, like which I which I did not know about you. I did that, not know that when it was we time went to, to San sleep, Diego together. Yeah, we went to Comic Con together, and we shared a hotel room for one night. And we, you know, we were we were probably chatting, having a nice time. There were two two twin beds or whatever it was. <laughs> and when you, it was time to time to tuck in, you put in your earbuds. You said good night, and you crossed your arms over your chest like <laughs> Bella fucking Lugosi, and like laid back like you were going into cryo sleep. And then Look, you didn't move again. You have to recharge the batteries however you can. And I I choose to put on basketball analytics pods and just zone out until I... But how I, do you call your sleep position like Babe Ruth? You know what I mean? Like, I don't... I, I'm I have more since become... Um, God, this is really good content. I've since become <laughs> a much more of a side sleeper and candidly, oh. like, um, like, just have found that, like, getting a pillow in between the knees really, like, is very oh. comfortable. So, really? yeah, like, I mean, apparently, like, you know, it just it just happened. I just I just realized that that was like something that was bothering me was like rubbing my knees together a lot during sleep. Like a, so, I've like changed is what I've said. I'd be curious <laughs> to see how I was with you now. Um, it's true that the no, the noise made by your knees did keep me on <laughs> <laughs> the staccato rhythm beating out against the San Diego night, just slowly grinding away on my MCLs. They were uh, like the cicadas are back, and I was like, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't really have like a take on Atlanta being. Uh, I think is right. it, if I read this correctly, Atlanta three and four are both coming this year. I was surprised by that. Yeah. Like I thought that. So this is the, some other FX news. I mean, how many years has Atlanta been off the air now? Even even longer. The event we did for season two was 2018, right? So it's yeah, and that was the, the end of season two. So yeah, so it's been off the air for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I assumed that when they were block shooting seasons three and four that they would at least stretch it for two years' worth of content. Um, they are not doing that. They, yeah. Landgraf said that season three is coming soon, in the next month or two, right? Well, season three is premiering at South by Southwest next month in a matter Jeez. of weeks. Yeah, so yeah. I think the first episode or first two episodes are, are playing at South by Southwest, and then it'll be on shortly after that. Um, yeah, Landgraf said a bunch of inter- interesting things. Obviously, he has been... So every year, he kind of does this sort of data-driven speech about the state of the industry. He talks about peak TV. He had predicted that peak TV was several years ago. I guess I had never actually really given much thought to the idea that there would be something after peak TV and maybe there would be a little bit of a contraction, which uh, obviously hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. He talked about how like clearly we are in some sort of peak TV and we'll, we'll actually are probably not even there yet as you know, I'm sure Peacock Comcast will be like spending billions of dollars to prop up the, that service. So like there will be more and more shows to watch. 
But he talked about like a state of bewilderment settling over the TV watching, uh, you know, Republic. And basically, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to tell. Is he referring to more of like a upper percentile of very, very engaged television consumer, TV media member and industry member? Or is mm-hmm. he talking about like there is like a sense now that if you're just I like watching two or three shows, I just can't find anything because there's just too much to choose from. Like, who is he really re- referring to? But I thought this idea of like, of entering TV bewilderment zone is a, a an interesting one. Yeah, I thought that whole thing was interesting. It, 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 and I, I especially liked reading his comments um, in contrast with Casey Ploy's um, from HBO. HBO and HBO Max are having a moment right now. It is not just that, you know, we obviously love HBO shows and talk about them constantly, and they've never not been a driver for our interest because of where we are as TV fans, but a consensus opinion has been forming based on actual data that, oh, wait, this might work, that HBO Max mm-hmm. is a legitimate competitor in the streaming wars and that it has some 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 legs. That's That's been a, a, a development. And Casey, to his great credit, um, continues to do these interviews where he is floating above the fray. I think it served him really well, and I think it's smart. But I did think it was interesting that this would be the moment when a more pugnacious old media titan would just take shots, right? Mm -hmm. And be like, we were right. Our commitment to this type of quality or whatever, this has been borne out by the facts and we're just getting started or whatever. And Casey just, you know, kindly and politely parries on almost everything. They're like, here are the six Game of Thrones spinoffs we know about. And he's just like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. I'll have to look into it. Well, he's he knows. Like, we have one coming and we're yeah. working on others. Exactly. Yeah. Here's the one that is coming which on Which is actually so what as made the very end of that interview that you're mm-hmm. referring to, which is, I believe, The Hollywood Reporter. The very last line, after basically poker-facing the entire thing, yes. he's just like, yeah, and True Detective is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. They, they finally cracked him. Like yeah. 19 questions. He was like, I will be speaking about these three topics and they only include um, the shows that are currently on our air. Right. And then, yeah, he did. He did slip about At that. At the end, they were like, what about True Detective? And he was like, watch this space. I, I, I also think it was worth noting that he was communicating something that is, I think, true. I don't think this is a pose, which is that because of HBO, I think he's, he do, he's interesting because he's succeeding in the streaming marketplace, but he is the steward of the old HBO legacy that you and I value so much um, mm-hmm. and talk about. And I do think that his comments about like, why would we reboot Six Feet Under? Why would we take another run at girls? I think is accurate. I think that, you know, the marketplace is demanding new versions of everything. And I'm sure they're testing the waters on a bunch of stuff. But I do think that um, he is invested in that idea that sometimes it's okay to leave well enough alone. And I think he's secure enough in his position to allow that to happen. I think that the Landgraf situation is in some ways more interesting because over the previous decade, he carved out such a unique spot in the TV landscape. I mean, the critics called him the mayor of TV because he loved to do these press conferences, but he also loved to joust and parry with the media and curry favor with the media, Mm -hmm. frankly. Like, you know, of all the executives, he he was the most, he was the first and most consistent executive to just be like back-channeling messages to me when I was a TV critic. Not like meddling or like, you know, trying to work the refs, but just be like, that was an interesting point, which I thought was interesting that he was really clued into that stuff from an earlier time. He also had that ability because FX was such an underdog and was doing, it was punching so far above its weight, making Emmy nominated shows, being in the conversation with the networks that were spending so much more money and, you know, proving that these legacy relationships with talent were worth 
having, right? Like mm-hmm. that was the place where people went, whether it's Donald Glover or in a, uh, you know, a pre-cancellation time, Louis C.K. You and I have talked about this before, but the the marketplace and everything has put FX in a very different position and one that I'm very curious to see how it punches its way out of. Landgraf was saying there's too much TV, but to compete, he's had to amp up you he's know, gonna make more. FX studios yeah. and he's going to make a lot more. A lot of those, you know, legacy, like overall creative deals, I don't know how much fruit they've borne because either they, you know, in the case of Louis C.K., that that they ended the deal. Donald Glover made the shows for a while and then took like a much, much exponentially bigger deal from Amazon who could afford to pay it. And FX is existing in this odd place where they finally have a corporate parent that could, you know, uh, make the money machines ring out. But that corporate parent is Disney. And how much they want to be in the prestige business that FX is in remains to be seen. So it's interesting. They have such a track record of making good bets, though. And then I don't, I don't know if you if you want to get into it, but like listing some of the new content that's coming, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like, I mean, there's there's like I, there's not a single FX show that I'm not interested in. Uh, no, no, like upcoming FX show. I mean, most of all the old man with Jeff Bridges, but there's a bunch of really cool shit coming. Um, they they, they it, talked about. And one thing to always keep an eye on for FX that we've, we've, we've shouted this out before, their half-hour development, you know, which just delivered reservation dogs to us when we did not expect it, nor did we, you know, I don't know if we deserve it. And, and it's, worth, it's worth paying attention to the FX press releases that might not get the attention, right? Like they, when they announce a big, big thing, like Great Expectations with Olivia Coleman, the co-production with BBC, that's huge. But also in this avalanche of content, they're, talk, they're talking about a show called The Bear, which is a half-hour comedy set in a restaurant in Chicago starring oh, yeah. Jeremy Allen White, who is on Shameless. Um, but also Hiro Mirai is involved. I'm not sure if he's directing it. Um, the, the sort of internet-famous chef, Maddie Matheson, is is advising. Could be cool. Like, if you think about it, do you want a restaurant show that's top-heavy with celebrity involvement or professional chef involvement? Or do you want something that is scrappy? And that you're not checking for that's going to make stars rather than have stars make it like that's that's a cool spot yeah and if they're still working that makes sense to me we could take a break right there i mean also i guess it's worth mentioning that fargo is coming back for a fifth season uh this one set in 2019 um and is about a kidnapping which is uh notable also because noah Hawley's also uh apparently working on this this alien show that um you know we haven't heard much about other than i think he was talking about like it being more about the corporate side of alien class warfare. I, yeah. I I think the alien one is probably the one to look at because that is the not just if you're a fan of it, but like that is such an interesting test case for the FX culture versus the culture that TV actually exists in in 2022. Yeah. Because it's Noah who has a long history and relationship with FX and, you know, I think candidly the relationship is Noah, what do you want to do? Right. Okay. And then this, not saying that this was forced on him, but I'm sure the corporate overlords at Fox and now Disney are happy when the expensive talent is working on, you know, potentially nutrient-rich uh, slabs of IP from the meat locker. Right. So Even if that is the Whalen Utani show and it's about like, you know, off, yeah, I mean, off look, planet we, we, mining. We went down this road before. I, I wrote on it. Like like Legion was then being like, hey, Noah, do you want to play in the X-Men universe? And he's like, sure. And right. <laughs> that was not necessarily the show for people who liked it when Quicksilver ran fast. So it'll be interesting. Right. Uh, Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the new show Severance on Apple. 
This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Okay, uh, we're back. Andy, I'm fired up. I thought this was a great show. Uh, we are talking about the first two episodes of Severance. We're not going to get too into spoiler territory in case people are listening to this beforehand. So this is more of an enthusiastic mm-hmm. ringing endorsement of this show. I wanted to ask you a little bit off the top. Now I can give you the log line in case you don't know. It stars Adam Scott and Britt Lower. It's about a, I don't know, I wouldn't call it dystopian, but it's like a kind of like, somewhat altered reality uh, to to our own where um, these group of people go into uh, an office every day and uh, at a corporation. And when they go to the office, they are separated from their memories of their uh, outside life. So uh, that's the, basically it's about people who are one person at work and another person outside of work. And that there is something that they go through at work that basically makes it so that they do not, they're not aware of their, of their, at home version of themselves for better or for worse. And that's a very cool black mirror setup. And uh, the episodes are directed. Most of them, I think are directed by Ben Stiller, if not all of them. And they're uh, I think about half the season. Yeah. And it was written or created by a guy named Dan Erickson. And these scripts had been, you, I think you had mentioned to me, Oh, like those were, that's like, that was a very hot script for a while. Right. This is, I know, listen, I know our listeners love industry, Andy, more than more than almost any other character that we play. This um, is useful info. This full is disclosure, ceremonial-grade industry news right here. This isn't usually the case, but I did read the first three scripts for this show um, last year. And they're dynamite. I mean, they're dynamite. This, I, I don't know Dan Erickson. I've never met him. But the scripts were thrilling to read. It is very, very rare to read something on the page that so clearly and um, boldly articulates a specific vision, but also has a very, very distinct point of view and tone. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you know, there there are Charlie Kaufman-esque elements in it, um, that, but they are delivered in a package that is I, I, you know, I, I actually lack some of the words to describe this. I was, I was going to say, it's funny you should say Kaufman because I was going to say my pitch for this show is it's mm-hmm. Michelle Gondry directing a 70s paranoid thriller. Yeah, I mean, the Eternal Sunshine thing is there on both sides, the the, the visuals and in the story. Um, but there was, I guess the thing that I want to say is that there's there was an efficiency to it. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it delivered. And part of my enjoyment in seeing the first few episodes of the show, and I have not, like you, I've not watched beyond the first two, is seeing the way that an excellent script was both elevated and in some ways restrained in healthy ways by a kick-ass production. So it is, you know, on the page, there's an enormous amount of, like there's there's a lot of whimsy, right? Like, in, and sort of a little bit uh, askew humor. So the series begins with a woman passed out on a conference table and a voice 
we find out later is Adam Scott's voice coming from uh, a small, like, uh, what do you call it, intercom like box. Like a speaker, yeah. Asking her who she is and if she can remember any U.S. states or territories. And she, the only one that she answers is that she remembers Delaware. There's also, as we learn as the pilot episode unfolds, there's there's deep grief at the heart of it and sadness. And it's set you know, perfectly in, in upstate New York winter to, to capture that. But you read these things on the page and you get excited about potential. And look, they're just phenomenal writing. Like I'm not even, I'm not trying to pretend that this was somehow bad and raised up. It was excellent on the page. But you watch this and you're like, oh, you can get, because it's Apple, you can get some of the best actors. You know, you can get Adam Scott to play a part that, Adam, that was almost like written for Adam Scott. You know what I mean? You can have a interesting supporting character with potential and you can get John Turturro to play him. You can bring in Christopher, Christopher Walken off the bench. You know what I mean? And Apple can do that for you. And these actors are going to elevate and find emotion in things in the scenes that you might not necessarily find, find it in. Then you get the production design, which is just phenomenal. It's a yeah. beautiful show. You get Jessica Lee Gagne, who's Ben Stiller's preferred cinematographer. She shot Escape from Danamora or Escape at Danamora. And the, the, the light, you know, the snow versus the snowy winter failing light versus the bright fluorescence of the office. Just crisp, kick-ass, amazing. And the music is wonderful. And then Ben Stiller, like from all accounts, an exacting auteur. But the guy can direct. And you combine all those things with the swagger of both money and talent. And you get a show that doesn't feel like anything else on TV right now. And I think that my enthusiasm for it comes from the fact that I'm super into it. I think it's funny and interesting. But also, it's different right now. It is zagging when TV is zigging. It does not feel like the same machine that produced Pam and Tommy, which I'm sorry has become our go-to punching bag. It's not. It's just that's the type of show that we're going to get a lot of this year, with whether they're good or bad. We've talked about this. This is a an original idea that has some relevance to our current cultural psyche, um, done with not just high style, but specific style. And yeah. that's what I really, really am responding to. I, I do think that it's a pretty resonant there's some pretty resonant ideas in there. They're just not tackled straightforwardly or head on. So like this idea that you could um, hide from your private life in your work or hide from your work life Mm -hmm. in your private life and that you might choose to do so, that that might be something that you were using as a coping mechanism. Um, I won't get into too much of like the plot details of the second episode, which starts to reveal a little bit more about Adam Scott's character and, and the, and the sort of setup of the show itself. But you're right. It's like a totality of vision thing. And it, it's really not a knock against other TV shows. I don't think that it's necessarily like a, a comparison. It's just like, you're right. They spent the money. They knew what they wanted. They picked this like setting and extracted as much sort of um, vibe and atmosphere out of each snowflake as they possibly could. Clearly, Ben, ben Stiller just is like, this vibe, this upstate New York thing is very interesting to That's me cinematically. Thing, yeah. Like he did Dan Amore, he's doing this. I think it's really effective. Anybody who's ever spent time up north in the Northeast in winter kind of knows that feeling of like, you basically have to have two change, like a change of clothes to deal with the, the elements and that. Like, I really liked like how Adam Scott has to like take his mud boots off to put his dress shoes on when he gets to work. Like that was a very familiar thing. My dad used to do all the time in Philadelphia in the winter. Chris, do you feel differently now or more open to the idea of severing your work life from your um, personal life now that you've told the listeners of your professional podcast where you prefer to have a pillow at night? 
Like, you know, it's, it's funny you should say that, new... though. But like, I think that this show hits a little bit different after working from home for two years. Yes, I, exactly. That's kind of <laughs> I what I meant about the, about the context. Yeah. Right. Like, this is a moment to think about what offices are for and what work culture is and what we're buying into. Totally. Yeah. Right? And also just like the idea of like, yeah, exactly. Like all this stuff that seems to go along with work that I'm not necessarily wasn't always sure it wasn't always there, but in terms of um, buying into the identity of the place that you work beyond and, and their values beyond just like, here's my services for this fee, you know, like, here's like, let's just have like a kind of cut and dry relationship. I'm not, I'm not sure that that wasn't the way it was for our parents growing up and the jobs that they were working, but it's really cool to watch it depicted in this show. And I also think that, um, you know, we often comment about this with comedies, specifically sitcoms where, you know, you want to give them like four or five episodes to kind of find the training, get the training wheels off Mm -hmm. and calibrate all the performances and calibrate the tone and, and, and get everything kind of set. And this shows it able to have its cake and eat it too. Because of the bifurcated nature of these people's lives, there can be a different show happening on the outside that's happening mm-hmm. on the inside. And even though they influence one another, I thought it was a very effective way of being like, Totoro can be dialed up to 11 and having a blast in there. And Zach Cherry can be awesome. People may remember him from the, the amazing Succession episode he was on. But you can also have like an overall feeling to the show that feels like like everybody knows what they're doing and everybody knows where it's going which is a really awesome feeling to have when you're watching a show yeah it's got all the it's got all the elements i mean it is leaning into as the season develops clearly like there's a paranoid thriller there's a conspiracy thriller element to it and that can exist outside whereas inside it is sort of a savage not even satire just sort of almost you know just depressing kind of reflection about what workplace culture even means. You, everybody knows, you, Chris, are an exceptional uh, basketball podcaster as well. So I, I, you could do a better job with this analogy than I can. But one thing that I wanted to point out was that to have a championship team, mm. this is relevant to us as Philadelphia fans as well, a lot of attention and chatter goes towards star hunting. Like clearly to win an NBA title, you need at least one of the 10 best players in the league and maybe two or three of the it's top It sounds 15. like you need two, yeah. <laughs> Seems like it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with two currently as a Philadelphia 76ers fan. Um, but what you also need, if you somehow manage to accomplish that, is you need to nail the low-cost hires as well. You need to have the role guys and the glue guys, and you need to pick up the expi- you know the right rookie contracts or cheap one-year deals or whatever. You need to get that. You need to make those decisions. Those decisions matter too. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what another one of the sort of maybe small bore, but ultimately really impressive things about Severance to me is that, yes, the cast is top heavy um, with famous TV stars who I'm sure, you know, did not take take a gentleman's or gentle lady's discount to be on this television show, sure. and nor did and Apple can certainly afford it. It's that on the margins. They nailed it time and time again. So you mentioned Zach Cherry, who is a familiar face for anyone who watches the HBO recycling casting program. I mean, he was also on Crashing. He's always a welcome sight. This is the biggest part I've seen him in, and he's perfect for it. He's mm-hmm. a perfect foil. You want that guy in the room to make the conversations a little bit funny or different. You mentioned Britt Lower, who's a great actor who I've been checking for for a while and has never really had the breakout lead role, and she's phenomenal, uh, ready for ready for the close-up. Um, and then especially there's a guy named... Um, Trammell Tillman, mm-hmm. who plays Milchuk, Milchak. Yeah. 
I've never seen this actor before. He's been working in a bunch of shows that I just missed. Um, looks like he was in Dietland and looks like he was on um, Godfather of Harlem. He's phenomenal. And again, I read this show and I pictured someone very different doing something very different in this part. And every scene he's in, he's wonderful and changes up the vibe and energy. Yeah. Like, the show doesn't work if you don't get those smaller hires, not smaller in terms of importance, but in terms of what's happening to your budget. And if I could, th this budget thing, I wanted to circle back to anyway in today's pod, because last week in the middle of trying to just come clean about how I don't understand what Bitcoins are, we went off on a small tangent about like the state of TV, which, you know, again, just classic The Watch. I think we sandwiched it between totally unnecessary conversations. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really a headline, but we were talking about like, would Mad Men get made today? Sure. And um, I think the thing that I often forget to include in the conversation is really one about money. So when we say, you know, AMC won't make it because it won't get attention and Netflix won't make it because they just want to buy it when it's finished. What this means is what price point are people going to buy it at? And what is the game of chicken that exists to do that? And basically what it comes down to is you could make Mad Men with no stars today. You know, someone might take a chance on it, but likely they wouldn't because to compete with the 540 other new shows coming out this year, shouts to John Landgraf, um, you're going to get lost. Mm -hmm. So the smaller networks feel like they can't take that bet. They need to put all of their money into at least one star to make it work. But then the rest of the show kind of either falls apart or, you know, or, or isn't there. So they're, they're not making those shows because they can't afford to make them. Apple can afford to make them. And then also TV is not one monolithic entity where one person is making decisions. This script is so good someone was going to make it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's exceptional. It was going to get made. Um, and then it found itself in a place where everyone's interests aligned, where you had the you had Ben Stiller and you had big actors and you had Apple. And now it's in the perfect place because Apple may or may not release the viewing data for the show. We don't know. It hasn't even premiered yet. Um, but the show is already one of the most significant shows that Apple has ever made, probably second after Ted Lasso. Or because morning. this show yeah. is currently 97% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and Apple's yeah, there never was a, had a critical hit before. There was a rave about it on, uh, well, Ted Lasso was, was something of a critical hit, I think, in its first season I, especially. But I think it, that's true, but I think having well a, critical, a critical hit drama um, I, It's the first time deal. that they have, I think I've seen an Apple show get released and see the raves that this has gotten. And if Andy and I sound a little bit like, I'm trying to detect, it's not, we're, it's not like we're at all like off the show it's like actually just like the content of the show makes you think about stuff in a way that it's not like a feel good show. Do you know what I mean? Like it's no. not. And I think that that sometimes comes out when you're talking about a show like that, where it's like, if it makes you believe in the power of humanity, like you maybe you're a little bit more effervescent or if it's really over the top, maybe you yourself are over the top. But I think when I think and talk about severance, I'm like, yeah, man, it's pretty fucked up out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, it's interesting. I didn't find it. I've heard other people say this. I was all oh, it didn't in depress I found... me. I was just like it you it there's just not like moments where you're just like whoa, you know? Yeah. Like, it's also look, it's it's a slow burn, you yeah. know? And one thing I'll say, um Ben Stiller took the scripts and he made them slower. Right. Like he put air into this show. You know what I mean? Like in the pilot there's a moment where I was almost the only moment I was ever on the fence is when Adam Scott's character, Mark, arrives at work and he starts walking through the hallways. And then three full camera minutes later, he's still walking through the hallways. 
You know what I mean? Like that is a choice. And ultimately I came around because of course it was beautifully shot and it worked for the show and the vibe that he was trying to promote, but also kind of, and this, I know this goes against a lot of my instincts as a TV, as a writer's medium. Ben Stiller has the quan to make that choice, right? which makes the show feel different. Longer, slower, rarely better, just as a blanket statement in my opinion, but made the show feel different. Yeah, it There's made, a version of it where the tone goes the other direction and tips over onto itself because it's too clever or cute and doesn't understand If in episode the, six, the we're still emotions. spending three minutes getting into the office, like I think right. maybe that will have like a different kind of effect on you. But mm-hmm. when you're watching it the first time or two, you're like, I am fully, un- I fully understand how hidden this is. Like w- these guys have to, they have to go down this elevator and down this hallway and down another hallway and down this hallway just to get to work. And so this must be a very secretive off the books kind of place if that's happening. So that made sense to me, but I agree with you where I'm like, man, like we're really enjoying like this person's commute. So it's, this full. Is a, it's just that this is a show of, I mean, it's just, it's just been, it was very refreshing to encounter it. It is a show of high quality and substance, right? You know, and and that is not necessarily a dig at other shows that we've liked less. I mean, part of the quality and substance comes from the money, the money on the screen in all departments. You know, it is evident, but also you're working with people who know what to do with it. And so I, I feel like we're in good hands and and I'm really happy about the show. I'm yeah, really we can talk it. about it more in depth in our next episode if you want to talk about any of the uh, the sort of plot details of the first two episodes, but we didn't want to give anything away for folks. We can wrap it up there. Uh, we were produced, as always, by Kaya McMullen uh, on the ones and twos. Andy Greenwald appears courtesy of Billy Bob Thornton's second hat, but not not the first one. Kaya, am I misremembering? I feel like in one of your production notes, you said, talk more about sleep patterns and how you like to get cozy. Right? Kaya, like is it that weird was... that I have a pillow between my knees and I'm not pregnant? <laughs> No, that is actually how you're supposed to sleep because then your spine doesn't get curved as you're sleeping. Bang. Helps yeah. with your lower back as well. And my what? back feels okay. A guy was having back problems when I started doing this. My back feels okay now. Is that Ask is about that, me, man. Could it feel better it, though? I, yeah, oh my God, you guys are blowing my mind. Okay, I'm going to go put on a couple hats and uh, fix <laughs> my spine. between your legs. Mm-hmm. Okay, Uh We'll probably talk about Severance more the next time we we chat. Well, we got some gemstone stuff coming up to chat about and lots of really good stuff. As John Landgraf said, the age of bewilderment is upon us. Andy, talk to you soon. Have a wonderful holiday weekend.